Anyway, I hope you guys are doing great this morning. What a beautiful time of worship um, we had this morning at a good time, just praising the Lord. And we're so excited for these Wednesday night classes to start up. There's a lot of people signed up for them. And we're, I just love um, seeing people go after the Lord. I just, I really do. I love seeing people want to dig in deeper to what God has for them. Um, and I really think that as God is doing the things that he's doing in this church, there's a responsibility for us to respond to what he's doing and go deeper with him. And it's just so joyful and exciting to see everybody digging into what God's got, uh, God has in store for them. There we go. So let's jump in uh, this morning, and today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22, um, and just for quick context, if this is your first time here, we're piggybacking off of what Pastor Ron shared last week and what I shared two weeks ago, and I, I do this quick explanation because audience and timelines of scripture are really important because it creates the setting in which we're reading uh, what's going on in scripture. So Jesus has come back to Jerusalem. It is the Passover festival. Um, he has flipped tables in the temple, and now he's being questioned by the religious authority in the land. And the focus of their questions and communication all surround um, trying to understand by what authority Jesus was speaking from. And in response to this authority, Jesus has given us already two parables, one of two brothers and another of the tenants that Pastor Ron shared last week. And today we're going to look at the third parable that Jesus gives us in this portion of scripture. So the first parable uh, tells and was directed at Israel's leaders. That was the parable of the two sons. The second story, the parable of the wicked farmers, exposes the leader's lack of responsibility to their people. And and that leads us to today's parable of a wedding feast. It's arguably the broadest audience of the three parables. And it is a story that is a direct stab at the Pharisees and religious leaders that are questioning Jesus. And it's important that we understand who this story is directed at because in its context, there's actually a very tense moment happening between Jesus and the people that are questioning him. So with that in mind, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be in the first 14 verses. Turn on your uh, Bibles if you've got them there. If you don't, that's okay as well. We'll have it up on the screen here. So let's read together. It says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed the man there was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness 
where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are invited, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach your throne this morning, God, I pray that you meet us there. God, that you would open our hearts this morning and our ears and our minds to hear the word that you have. Lord, I pray there would not be a word that I say, God, but you would speak through me this morning. And God, you would anoint your church. You would pour out a a fresh wind and fire in each of our souls, Jesus, that would burn deeply to encounter you more greatly. God, that as we study your word as a church and as we worship you, Lord, you would make us more like you every day, drawing us closer and closer. We pray that you would produce fruit in this church, Lord, of love and joy and peace and patience and every other good thing that comes from you, Father. We love you and we commit this morning and this time together to you. We ask this in your precious son's name. And everyone said, amen, amen. So we have another parable um, in this setting and this time we're at a wedding. So I've, I asked this question in the first service and it was interesting because it was a really divided room. How many people like going to weddings? How many people enjoy going to weddings, okay? How many people don't enjoy going to weddings? Right, man, it's, again, kind of a split room, right? Sometimes you get that wedding invitation, like, I gotta buy another toaster, right? Or an air fryer, air fryer is the new thing. I gotta buy another air fryer, you know, or, or whatever it is. But if you've ever been to different weddings, you know, or have been to any wedding in general, sometimes weddings have different traditions that take place at them. And I l- really, truly look forward to going to weddings. I love weddings because the weddings I grew up with were kind of off the hook, okay? They were, they were wild. Aaron knows what I'm talking about. So out east, I want to share with you quick what my cousin Dominic's wedding looked like when he got married. So most people, I've been to some Midwest weddings, they're kind of, some of them can be quick and that's great because that's what you want and that's awesome and that's your tradition. It's not about the ceremony, it's about starting life together and then going and starting life and that's beautiful. An Italian wedding starts at like 12 o'clock in the afternoon, it doesn't end till like one, two o'clock in the morning, okay? So if you're ever invited to those, just be ready and get a pair of sneakers with you because you're going to need them. Your dress shoes are going to, your feet are going to be hurting if you wear the dress shoes the whole day. So we would start, we'd get to the church, I don't know, 11, 12 o'clock in the afternoon. We'd take family pictures and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the serve, the ceremony itself would start at two o'clock ish. And then they would go through the wedding. They would do the pronouncement of the bride and, and groom. They would walk out of the church and that's just like the opening act. Okay. Then we would drive to another location. And when we got to the other location, that's like the banquet hall. And when we got there, they had a whole room set aside for the family and the family could sit down and there was like appetizers and all that kind of stuff. Then when the wedding hall opened, it opened with like an appetizer bar and there was like giant red snapper that they were like serving fish out of. It was unbelievable. A mashed potato bar because what screams wedding more than mashed potatoes, right? I don't know why. I mean, you want it, you got it. Our elder Bill was like, sign me up. I love mashed potatoes. That's a wonderful thing. You want bacon on them? Got it. You want green onions? It's cool. Anything you can imagine, it was all there. And then when the actual wedding hall opened, there's a five course meal dancing literally until one o'clock in the morning. It is an absolute spectacle to behold. And you sleep for like three days after it because you are absolutely exhausted. If you had pedometers, you probably ran a marathon just from dancing and hanging out with everybody. It was really a good time. And in those weddings, there's a lot of traditions and each culture, each family, they all have traditions. Anybody ever been to a Jewish Orthodox wedding before? Maybe a few people, right? There's traditions that happen at those. And there are traditions inside the wedding ceremonies that took place in Jesus' time. 
And it's important for us to understand what those are because as he's sharing this parable that takes place at a wedding, we should understand what they would understand. So it's important for us to wrap our head around the three stages that are involved in a Jewish wedding in Jesus's time. The first step was something called the betrothal. And during this time, there is a contractual arrangement whereby the authority over the woman was transferred from her father's household to the household of her prospective husband. Real romantic stuff. I mean, when you watch romantic comedies, this is always in there, isn't it? There's always that moment. So there was a ceremony involved with this step, and there was something called a token bride price that was paid to the bride's father by the father of the husband. And it's interesting because once we start understanding this step in this process, it actually opens the door a little bit into our walk with Jesus, right? So when we talk about Jesus paying for our sins, it's easy to start understanding this ceremony of becoming the bride of Christ. The second stage was the preparation of the marriage certificate. And this certificate included a monetary agreement between the bride and the groom that provided for the bride in the event of a death or a divorce. And the last stage actually happened sometime after these first two events. And it was the actual ceremony. And that ceremony began with the bride being bathed and perfumed and dressed in fine linen and then was publicly walked from her father's house to the house of her new husband. So these wedding ceremonies had a lot to them and it was very likely that the surrounding community was well aware that there was a wedding drawing near. So think about even in today's terms, right? If somebody gets engaged, do we typically see pictures on Facebook now? A couple got engaged, right? I know, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm that old, but we sent out uh, uh, pronouncement of marriage or engagement pictures and all that kind of stuff to all of our friends and family to let people know, hey, we're engaged because I got married in 2007. Social media, I wasn't even really on social media back then. So if you wanted people to know that you were engaged or getting married, you had to send out information. You would save the date because you wanted people to come to your wedding and celebrate together, right? And today, like I said, we have social media and we see those things, but typically there's a lot of joy and excitement around these moments. There's a palpable anticipation. Oh, this couple is getting married. That's exciting, especially when you know that that's a beautiful, equally yoked couple. But this wedding in the parable isn't just for anybody. This isn't Michael's wedding. This isn't, you know, any of us even here in this room. This was a royal wedding. This was the king's son that was getting married. So now anybody here who said they don't like going to weddings, if you received an invitation to the Queen of England's son getting married, an all expense paid trip to go and be at that wedding, you would probably think about that, wouldn't you? No matter how much you don't like weddings, you'd go, that sounds kind of cool. That's like maybe a once in a lifetime opportunity to go be a part of something that big. And that's what this wedding was all about. So in this parable, there is a father who is preparing a feast for the wedding of his son. And the imagery here is so beautiful as Christ communicates his church being his bride. So let's look at verse two again. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused. See, the father here was excited and he wanted everybody to celebrate with him. 
but everyone refused. But did he give up? No, he did not. And it's just like Christ's nature to not give up on anybody. If we could look at 2 Peter, I think we've got a slide for it. Um, Chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. What does that say? Not wanting anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So when he shows us this in verse 4, Uh, of Matthew 22. It says, then he sent some more servants. It's like, go tell them again. Go let them know this is happening. Tell them, tell those who had been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. So instead of coming to this banquet to celebrate with the king's son, these folks found more value in working or going out into their field and just doing their own thing. And if that was us preparing this, I'm sure we would all be very upset that no one would show up to all the preparation that was done. I can only imagine the amount of food and the time and the resources and the money that went into preparing a wedding feast like this. I mean, it says that the oxen and fatted calf have been butchered. So that's, this is what that means to me. I bet they had beef brujol up in there. I bet they had that nice prosciutto and the nice ragotta salata, and they had the supersad and the hot sausage and the oxtail, and you name it. All that good stuff was probably prepared and out, ready to eat. And while all this food was ready, and while the table was set, there was no one there to celebrate. Church, we live in an age that as we share the gospel, we will be met with rejection. And we could prepare the nicest table. We could have the best theological arguments of why you should follow Jesus. And we can still be met with rejection. So the king here has given many opportunities for his people to come to the banquet, yet they still refuse and even mistreat the messengers or the prophets that brought the message. You see, in verse 7, the king responds, and the king was enraged. It says, he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned down their city. Now, this sounds kind of extreme, Just remember, this is a metaphor. So if you're getting married and someone doesn't show up at your wedding, this does not give you liberty to burn down their house. Okay? Can I have that commitment from everybody, please? Okay, there's some folks that are getting married here in the near future. If you don't show up to their wedding, I need to know that you're not going to burn down their houses, all right? We're good. We We can't be known as that church. We don't want to be the church that burns down people's houses. But remember, this is a metaphor, okay? And, and understanding this, this metaphor, this is, this is what Jesus is pointing to, right? We have tons of passages in the Old Testament that were pointing the Israelites, God's chosen people, towards a coming Savior. And many in that culture studied these scriptures, and they knew them by heart. God would even send prophets to warn his people, and their message was often ignored, So many times in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they just straight up turned their backs on God. And now the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is standing in front of them, and still they reject his message. 
the ones who were supposed to lead Israel into a covenant relationship, the ones who had titles, who had responsibilities, are the very same people the king in this parable is calling unworthy because they're refusing to honor who Jesus is. That's where this tension in this parable comes from. Church, there were people in that, in that day and age who would read the Torah out loud weekly. They would read through the prophet's words in the Old Testament. They literally had the study guide to the test their entire life. And the answer to the, to the test was standing in front of them, and they couldn't see it. Some of them could see it, but they, if they knew if they trusted in Jesus, it would mean that they would have to let go of themselves. And they would have to let Jesus be really who he is. So that means that they would lose their power and authority and their position and their title, and they would be submitting to Jesus. And it would be easy for him to just stop and say, we're done. But no, he does not do that. He continues in verse eight, the king, and he says, then the king, he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. Jesus isn't stopping. The banquet is still ready, but those I, I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners. And remember, it's an interesting location because a few weeks ago, Jesus talked about how the tax collectors and the prostitutes were welcome. Jesus says, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone, anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. So in this parable, the king is not letting the rejection of others stop him from bringing as many to the feast as possible. Church, it is so easy if we share the gospel and we're met with rejection to go, oh, I'm done with that guy. He doesn't want to know anything about Jesus. So I'm done. Nope. See you later. Oh, I thank God people didn't give up on my parents. I thank God people didn't give up on me on sharing the gospel, on my father-in-law, on my whole family, my whole lineage is, is a history of people who didn't give up on them, who continue to share the gospel of Jesus with them to say, hey, I have the answer and you're gonna want this because when you meet this guy, he's gonna change your life. So Jesus doesn't stop, the king here doesn't stop bringing as many people to the festival as possible. Now, you may ask, if all of these people who are coming to this wedding were coming off the street, how in the world would they be physically ready and appropriately dressed to attend a wedding of such occasion? You see, these weddings had an expectation of a certain attire. One commentary suggests the following. He wrote, everyone was invited, but proper wedding attire was still expected. And there are two possibilities for what this means. Number one, there is some evidence in the ancient world for a king supplying garments for his guests. We see this in Genesis 45 and in Esther chapter 6. And more broadly, there is a story of God clothing his unworthy people in beautiful garments. That's found in Ezekiel 16. Thus, by not wearing the garments provided, this act would be considered highly insulting the second possibility is the wedding garment may refer to a clean garment symbolizing evidence of righteous works. So this action 
of a host providing clothes to the people coming in is really, really important. And it is a beautiful example of a fancy theological term called imputed righteousness. I want to define that word because fancy words sound intimidating, but they're really not when we break them down. The word impute, which is the first of the two words, means to credit or ascribe something to a person. And the word righteousness means to be in right standing or right position before God. So when we put these two words together, it means that right standing or right position has been credited to you. Okay? Many of you know that before my time in ministry, I worked in, in banks. I did mortgage lending. I was a teller. I was a loan clerk. I did a lot of back-end processing, front-end processing, you name it, did it all. And what was interesting when I did mortgage lending is I met a lot of very unique and interesting and fun people. And every one of them had one thing in common. I would like to buy a house, Michael. Oh, that's great. That's, that's neat. Let's start the process. And if anybody's, how many people have bought a house here before? Right? It's like an insanely stressful process, is it not? Like there's so much work. I mean, I'm surprised they're not requiring blood samples yet on the amount of paperwork that's required to purchase a home. But what I would have to do, my job as a mortgage loan officer was to assess the person in front of me's capacity to repay a debt that the bank would lend to them. And I would do that by pulling something called credit reports. I would look at their pay stubs and their tax returns. I would look at bank statements and all sorts of stuff. And I would have big formulas that I would run and try to figure things out to determine if the people in front of me were able to pay back this debt. And there was some dead in the water loans as soon as you would pull credit. If there was like medical collections or things like that that weren't paid, it stopped the, the deal right there. We could not proceed until that debt has been paid. We can't do anything until that's taken care of, okay? And there's a lot of times that the credit was great, the income was great, and I would be able to approve people. And that was very fun to see people go and get a house and take them through the process because at the end of the day, everyone just wanted a place to call home. They wanted a roof over their head. But there was times that I had to deliver bad news to people too. And I'd have to deny them of a loan because of maybe things that were on their credit history or just the numbers didn't work out. And if I was ever in a situation where I had to deny somebody a loan and the person in front of me said, hey, Michael, before you just completely deny this loan, can you talk to my dad? I'd say, why? Okay, fine. I'll talk to your dad. I don't know what your dad's going to add to this conversation, but sure, I'll talk to him. And if I called his father, and if this father said, I understand my son is trying to get a loan. Well, yes, sir, but, you know, he doesn't qualify and whatever. And if this father said, I just want you to know I'm a billionaire and I have no debts to my account, whatever he wants, I'll pay. I'll cover allow this man to buy anything he wants and credit it to my account. I would listen to that phone call. See, what this billionaire is doing is essentially giving his broke child access to his account. And the money he has access to, he can now use to purchase a home. The broke son leaves a proof for a house and the expense has been covered by the father. Church, that's imputed righteousness. One commentator wrote this. He said, we were broken, sinful with no right standing before God because of our sin. 
However, Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. And when you put your trust in him, he takes his righteousness and credits it to your account. You gain access to righteousness, not because of anything that you have done, but because Christ applied it to your account. This imputed righteousness puts you in right standing before the Father as if you had done the right thing all along. The people who were invited to the wedding rejected Jesus. Those were the ones who had on the right clothes. But Jesus opened his banquet to you and me and said, come and dine with me and celebrate together. How beautiful is that? Guys, how bad is the God that we serve? He's opening the door saying, come in. The banquet is ready. I need to hear that today. I need to hear that today. Those who are not prepared, guess what? Jesus prepares. The ones who are unclean, guess what he does? He makes them clean. Those who were rejected by others because there were blemishes on their credit report, Jesus welcomes them with open arms and says, I'm covering your debt, you're good. But as we come to the Father Church, we have to ask ourselves, are we allowing him to transform us? You see, in verse 11, Jesus mentions a person who comes to the festivities who is not wearing the appropriate clothes. So this was a person who was allowed to come in and either rejected wearing the clothes the king gave him, according to the commentary we read before, or he refused to clean up for the banquet. Church, we have to let Jesus transform us into something new. I know this. Michael, without Jesus, is a terrible person. He's a jerk. He, just, he is. He is a, he's mean. He's rude. He's angry. He's a jerk. It is only because Jesus has done a work in my life that I can walk in joy and peace and kindness. That is the only exclusive reason. And if we cannot come to the cross and say, Lord, we're going to do things my way, we have to come to the cross and say, my way got me here. I need you, Jesus. I need you to carry me. I need you to take me where you want me to go. Church, this person that's kicked out of this banquet, it's an example of anyone who says, if I'm simply a good person, I get to spend eternity in heaven. I'm cool with Jesus, but only on my terms. That's not how this works, guys. We have to come to the cross, and Jesus will take you as you are, and he'll take you places you never thought you'd go. I've seen it in my life. But the punishment for this person was to be bound and thrown out of the wedding to a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The consequences for this person, the consequences for this person's actions were based on their own decisions. And it's interesting because Jesus refers to this person in this parable as friend. And I think that speaks tremendously to Jesus's character because the word that is used here is called heteros, H-E-T-A-I-R-O-S, and that's in the Greek, and it means comrade or kindly addressed. And guys, it's only used three times in all of scripture. That's it. The first one is here. The second one is in the parable of the wages when people were arguing about what they should get, and the last time that Jesus uses this, he responds to Judas saying, do what you came for, friend. 
each of these instances that Jesus uses this language is in response to someone who has wronged someone else. Yet Jesus still calls him friend. I think that speaks deeply to his love for all of humanity. I think it speaks to God's character. Church, Jesus is not excited about removing people from the banquet. There's not joy in that. There's times that we get excited when people get what's coming to them. Guys, if we got what's coming to us, you know where we would be? I mean, how many people here have lived a perfect, flawless life and should have nothing charged against them? My son asked me this week, he goes, Dad, have you ever done anything that would get you arrested? I just laughed. I was like, yeah. And I don't know how I got away with some of those things in college, but thank God I was not arrested. But I, if, if, if I am given what's due to me, I shouldn't be standing here this morning. Yet Jesus says, no, you're worthy. Come. Church, God gives mankind every opportunity to repent and to choose the king of kings, to be transformed and to put on garments of righteousness. Yet a person can still be so blinded by selfishness or unforgiveness or in the case of the parable, wanting to do things their own way or pride that we can't accept God on his terms. David Platt asserts that this wedding guest did what many people do today. They profess Christ with their lives. They profess Christ while their lives show no evidence of saving faith. Such people are ungrateful to God and their obstinacy, when confronted, reveals a deep-seated rebellion against God's authority. They have no joy in God, no real desire to read or hear his word. They continue to pursue the fleeting and empty false joys that this world has to offer, but end up miserable and angry at God. This wedding guest rejected the king until the king finally rejected him. And we see what happens to him in verse 13. It says, the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The guest is rightly punished, and he's cast out into darkness, a horrifying judgment that is a direct result of rejecting God. And the language there of weeping and gnashing of teeth is really interesting because it shows up actually a few times in Scripture, and its context shows us that it's not actually a physical feeling of physical pain. In Acts chapter 7, it says the gnashing of teeth is done in anger because of what Stephen had said to the Jewish council, that they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. In Psalm 37, it says the wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. In these passages, wicked persons gnash their teeth at righteous persons as the wicked plot against them or disapprove of them. So according to scripture, gnashing of teeth was a sign of great disrespect or anger. It's like getting mad at someone because they were right and you were wrong. And your pride drives you to hate that person even more. That's a dark place to be, brothers and sisters. Because at the end of the day, every single one of us will be held accountable to the King of Kings. Romans 14, verses 11 and 12 says, It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. 
And church, as Jesus closes this parable in verse 14, he says, many are invited, but few are chosen. Church, God has invited every single person here and around this world to the celebration banquet and to the party. My invitation does not look any different than yours. Pastor Ron's invitation does not look any different than yours because we have fancy letters in front of our names. Each of us have an opportunity to walk in freedom and righteousness and salvation before the King of Kings, to put on a wedding garment of righteousness provided by our Heavenly Father, but some will still reject because our pride and our anger get in the way. Craig Lausenborough said, the problem that I think I have with God is often not a problem at all. Rather, it is most frequently a tired misperception where I have made God what I need him to be in order to justify my rejection of him. Is that hitting home to anybody? How many times I look at God through my lens and say, listen, we got to do things my way because you're wrong. And how dangerous it would be that we gnash our teeth at the king of kings to say, I know better than you. Remember Job said that to God and God said, I'm sorry, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? We don't know better than him. And we cannot look at God through a lens that's not him. You know what this looks like? I've been hurt by the church. No, you weren't. You were hurt by people. That's who you were hurt by, imperfect people. Last time I checked, the King of Kings hasn't let anybody down. He's revealed himself to everyone if you're willing to run to him. So put that distrust or that frustration, give it to the Lord and say, God, heal this, please. Because as we start gnashing our teeth at the King of Kings, what's that holding us back from actually doing? Are you hearing me? Guys, we all feel it. Worship in here, the last couple of months, it has been precious, man. God is doing some stuff. And for him to continue to do it, it's gonna require us to submit to his ways. I was walking on the beach with my daughter this last week. It was just me and her, we were hanging out. And I had this precious moment with her. I haven't even told my wife this yet. We were walking and she said, Daddy, I'm, I'm trying to step in your footsteps. All the sand that I was leaving. And I just felt like that's what God wants from us. He's walking. He's saying, just step where I'm going. I want to make you into something new. I want to make you into who I created you to be. I want you to share my word and my love and my gospel with other people. You know, you, you see all these things this world has. I got to talk to somebody. Bill got to share with this person too. Where he, this person came up to him and said, you guys are really blessed. You have all this stuff, whatever. I go, man, all this is going to go. This stuff ain't gonna be here. I'm confident of that. I'm just trying to walk in joy knowing that there is, a, there is a savior who died for me and let me reconcile to him. And as beautiful as the waves were crashing on the beach, I knew that that is nothing compared to eternity. And if it's that beautiful, and I kept thinking of, of, of the, all of the sand on the ground, that eternity is more than all of the sand that's on the ground. Man, the Lord was just speaking this week. And he wants to talk to all of us in every circumstance, if we'll listen. He wants to do something with every single person here. Are you going to let him do it? Or are we going to dig our heels in and say, no, 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 Lord, you listen to me. This is how we're going to do things. At the end of the day, church, the gospel of Jesus is so simple. 
Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect and sinless life, was crucified for our sins, died and rose again to reconcile us to our heavenly father. And his name is still Emmanuel today, God with us. He is not going to leave you. He is not going to forsake you. The people that have hurt you in this earth, there is healing, there is hope, there is forgiveness, there is restoration, all found at the cross of Jesus. It requires us to just go to him. And I know this, church. There are people here today that are hurting. There are people here that are broken, that have things going on, and aren't you tired of holding that in? Don't you want to let some of that stuff go? Don't you want to come to your brothers and sisters and say, we need to give this to the Lord? If you've got wayward kids, we need to be praying for them. If we've got wayward family members, we need to yoke up and be praying for them. Because God is doing something, and he wants us to participate in it. And that's how we get to do it, by worshiping him, allowing him to come into our lives and bearing one another's burdens by praying for one another and worshiping together. So as the worship team comes up this morning, we have a chance and we have a choice today to encounter the king of kings. That if there's healing or anger or forgiveness that's all needed, all of that is found at the cross. Do we know Christ? Are we willing to walk with him? Are we willing to follow him on the beach and say, wherever you go, I want to go? Church, as I read these last couple of questions, I want us to take this last song and this time seriously, that if you do have things going on, we want to pray with you. There's going to be men and women in the back that will have some lanyards on. We want to yoke up with you and go to the throne of grace with you. But the first is, have you been rejecting God? Have you been rejecting God? Or have you been rejecting what he's been trying to do in your life? Because maybe it's uncomfortable and it doesn't feel like, I don't know about this. I'm telling you, stop rejecting him. It's the best decision you will ever make. Allow him to take you where he wants you to go. No matter the circumstances, he will provide. And number two, are you actively accepting the Lord's invitation in your life? If he's been calling you and you've been here, maybe you've been coming to the church for the past few months and you've been hearing all these messages and, and something stirring in your heart, it's time. Repent and be saved. The kingdom of heaven is near. Come to the cross. And lastly, church, are you willing to allow the Lord to clothe you in his righteousness? Not the way you want it, the way he wants it and the places that he wants to take you. Are you willing to let him wipe out your credit report and start over? Lord, we need you this morning. And Father, we thank you that we can come together as brothers and sisters and worship you and be challenged by your word. Father, I pray you would not leave here until you're done. God, as you are stirring hearts, I pray that we would be a faithful church to respond to what you're doing. God, that the hurt that's in this room, Lord, you would, you would stir it up, God, so that we would come and get help and prayer, Lord, and that you would provide healing to those that are hurt. For those that need reconciliation, Jesus, Lord, you'd clothe them in your righteousness and reconcile them to the Father. For those that are lost, Lord, I pray you call them home. Those that are hungry, you'd feed them, Lord. God, you love us and you're doing a mighty work. Lord, we want to be a part of it. 
God, let us not reject you and try to do things our way. Let us submit to your ways, which are so much higher than ours. You are king. You are good, Lord. Pour out your spirit this morning as we worship you. We love you, Father. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.